Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, so we are continuing through questions that listeners have sent in to us, and we're just going to continue where we left off yesterday. The question was, are the gifts of, the, of speaking in tongues, healing, and prophecy still applicable to today? The places where you'd go to find these in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, you said yesterday, Ephesians, Ephesians 4. 4. Okay, so... Uh, one, Romans 12. Romans 12, Yeah. And I think we should just start by just defining some of these. If you look at um, the gift of prophecy, prophecy carried two components to it, um, the idea of foretelling and foretelling. And the idea is that there are some prophetic words where it's just declaring truth. That's an ongoing gift, naturally. That's, that's the gift of what um, preachers and teachers do. That's yeah. foretelling. We don't believe in foretelling. We don't predict the future. We, we can't tell... Um, God does not give us a prophetic word in what he is going to do. And that's that related why, to his special revelation. That that is his, the, yes. The, that particular prophets and apostles back then. Yeah. That's right. Um, William Perkins had uh, – Puritan William Perkins, he had this little Puritan paperback called uh, The Art of Prophesying. And this was a Puritan mm-hmm. who helped in – you know, teaching the doctrine that we're setting forth today. Now, when he said the art of prophesying, he didn't mean the art of telling the future. He meant the art of preaching. Mm-hmm. And right. unfortunately, we don't really use that word like that today. Um, but I actually, I, I, I actually think that uh, really ultimately, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 14 yesterday, I think that we come there with presuppositions and we don't look at the context of what's being written. Corinth is a port city. It is it is right on a, a isthmus of land, you know, where they would actually uh, truck boats across land to the other side because it was close. It it was filled with a number of different individuals. If you've ever lived, it was the real, true melting pot of of uh, uh, people coming from all different countries and that. What I believe in the most normative reading of that would suggest that there's somebody that's coming to that church that speaks maybe maybe that you know they're 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 from another country speaking a foreign language. If there is no one there to interpret, it does no good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there's a normal way of approaching that. So and. and and uh, you know some of the some of the individuals. Paul himself was gifted in number of language. Uh, are um, you know even the the writers of the New Testament? They probably spoke Aramaic. They wrote in Greek. You know, so there were multiple languages known to them. Uh, you know, being an American, I speak <coughs> English. <laughs> you know, I I you know I I I know two words in Spanish. I know you know I'm not multilingual, but and so I don't have that gift of tongues to be able to communicate on that level. Can I ask a question real quick? Do you guys think that Acts two is like a lens 
for the gift of tongues in First Corinthians twelve and fourteen, or no? Or maybe I think it's I think it's both and because I think Acts two evidences some of the same things. Why were the people Why were the people there in Jerusalem in the first place? For Pentecost. For Pentecost, who was there? Jews and then all proselytes from different countries, right? Parthian, Medes, Elamites, and rest of right. the but they didn't. But they didn't. They didn't necessarily speak Parthian or Mede or that. They, yes. they there would have been uh, Hebrew. There would have been Latin. There would have been Greek. There would have been uh, uh, you know uh, you know those about four languages that would have covered all those groups, and and they were there. And when they came together to to the Temple Mount to hear. They would have expected uh, the language that was, you know, the high language of Scripture at that point would be Hebrew. I mean, there's something akin to that with regard to, um, you know, even in certain Catholic circles, you will have a Latin mass. I I grew up in a town that, uh, you know, one of the little Catholic churches there said the Latin mass every week. Um, That was the expectation. So some of these people didn't speak Hebrew would come there that even though they they just came there for the experience and what happened was they heard the language in the common language of the day and so and that's why I say you know it actually maybe is a little bit of a lens because the opposite condition is taking place in Corinth where instead of a you know instead of a collection of people who had a certain expectation here you have a, a situation in which there are multitudes of languages being spoken mm-hmm. um you know there's probably the only place you could experience that would be on the docks you know today in in port cities mm-hmm. where you would have that same experience mm-hmm. yeah and i think People have misread First um, Corinthians thirteen one when Paul writes, "If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and they say, see, there are these ex- extraordinary languages. There's angu- ang- ang- angel language.' Um, I think we just have to be careful because you have to read a text within its context. And First Corinthians thirteen verses one through three are clearly hyperbole, <laughs> clearly." I, I, I'm assuming everybody reads them that way. And the problem is that people read them that way, and then they put these exceptional clauses on there and say, oh, except for the part about the tongues of angels. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Wasn't it all hyperbole? Mm-hmm. So we just don't do a good job of working with the text. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we get to, to the next part and says, um, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Well, who is that? Well, no one does. So we know it's hyperbole. I mean, we're not going to have the faith to remove mountains. When was the last time you saw somebody speak to a mountain and have it thrown into the sea? Oh, wait a minute. I haven't seen that. Oh, because it never happened. (laughs) That's hyperbole. That's what hyperbole is. So we don't read the rest of the verses that way. So we have to be careful that we don't just do an injustice to the text because we want to prove something. Yeah. That's right. the wrong way to do biblical interpretation. Right, and and I'm, I'm not going to be the contrarian here, um, but somebody has to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that, yeah, obviously the second chapter of Acts I, first of all, I agree with you that when Paul says, I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he, he's using hyperbola. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second chapter of Acts is obviously about, you know, it's not about ecstatic 
utterances. It's about um, speaking in known languages that they hadn't naturally learned. Uh, so it's a supernatural event. I do want to leave the door open personally that it seems to me in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul may be, may be talking about some kind of an ecstatic prayer language that's not decipherable or discernible in the, in the normal way. But even at that, even if we allow that, I want to read from the from First uh, Corinthians fourteen, uh, beginning with verse eighteen. Paul says, "I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue." Mm-hmm. Uh, then, in other words, in public worship. Um, worship is to be 100% intelligible. Mm-hmm. That the person off the street can come in and and hear the gospel and you know hear it in plain speaking terms just as the New Testament presents it. Uh, remember that the New Testament isn't even written in the, the classical Greek of, of, the, uh, of the first century. It's written in Koine Greek, the language of the common people. And, and that's the way I, I think our, our Lord has intended the gospel to be presented. And, and that's, that's the you know, I, I think Paul's advice is sound. Whatever you think about speaking in tongues and what that means, Paul's advice is, he says, I'd rather speak five words in a, in a discernible language mm-hmm. than thousands in, in an unknown tongue. And I think that's what Nehemiah 8 is saying. They read from the book from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been the heart of worship from the very beginning, that God has spoken. He's spoken clearly. He wants to be understood and known. And so the idea is that instead of basing our faith on an experience, mm-hmm. We base it on a known entity that has revealed himself in his word, and that word is the word of Christ, the spirit is the spirit of Christ, that it all comes back to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, Mm -hmm. that, yes, contains an experience, but the experience is not the the kernel. Uh, the, The experience is just merely an outgrowth. And so what I fear has happened so frequently is that experience has trumped divine revelation in his word by his spirit. And the spirit, I would say, always uses the word um, to communicate to his people. And so when we, and this is my fear in charismatic and Pentecostal movements, that there has been an unnatural separation of word and spirit. Mm -hmm. And you will not find that separation in the word of God. What you'll find is that they go hand in hand, that the spirit always works and and teaches and instructs according to the word. And there's not an elevation of spirit over word or word over spirit. They're they're both and, they're both together. And I think that experience, um, I'm willing to be proven wrong, but I have never met an exception to that in charismatic circles. Yeah that it's always been an elevation of the spirit over the word, and that's a dangerous place to be. And yeah. I would argue also, it's a, I think it's a, an elevation of the individual over, over the corporate whole. If you look at 1 Corinthians, like Paul gives his kind of thesis argument for the whole book in chapter 1. In, starting in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And then every other chapter after that, he's aiming at that. Okay, how can I bring you to the same mind and the same judgment? And so I think there's a, a danger of the way that we try to express our gifts of elevating the individual over the body, number one. But number two, I would say, brothers, I'm all about what, what everything the Bible says, but let's just be honest. There's only a handful of places where it talks about you know the gift of tongues in the Bible. Do you know well, where it talks about? It talks about Jesus Christ everywhere else. And if the emphasis in our speech doesn't line up with the emphasis in the Bible, something's wrong. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that the most that it talks about the the spirit and these extraordinary gifts is in by far, hands down, not even close, the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament era. <laughs> so that's our yes. model. We yes. want to be like Corinth. Right. I don't want to be like Corinth. Corinth, right. they got two letters because they had that many errors, <laughs> that many mistakes, that many problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. don't tell me about the, the spirit at work when it's spontaneous. What you have is error at work when there's spontaneity. And I, if I have one more person tell me that the spirit's not at work in our church because there's no spontaneity, I might bop him in the nose <laughs> because I am a convinced. Holy bop, though, right? It'll I am convinced yep. that God works through His Spirit as I sit at my desk and study the languages and study the text and and submit to the Word of God and its authority. Amen. That's spirit wrought. Amen. And don't challenge me on spontaneity and say that that's the only way the Spirit moves. I'm on my knees in my office asking that the Spirit would work in and through the preached Word of God. Amen. That's Spirit rot. And I take great umbrage at this nonsense of spontaneity. And that's what it is. It's nonsense. Yep. Amen. Well, this is another example of being careful with the text. If you would like to get caught up on any of our po- uh, past broadcasts, just go to ReformationBoise.com, or you can click on our um, Gospel for Life app um, if you're at your local podcaster. Um, so we'll see you next time. 